I guess trolls have kind of lost their fantasy connotations in lieu of internet ones. There's a lot of mixed messaging about trolls out there, everyone. And over the next 45 minutes, we're, we're here to down. set it straight. Yeah, hold on. <laughs> this is gold. We got to save this. Hello, Marvelites. You're listening to Marvel's full list for new comics on sale June 24th, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka H&M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And uh, we have a fun episode this week. We've got eight new comics to share with you. Get excited. There's some really big stuff in here. Uh, but we also have a fun guest. Uh, if you you listen to the show, we sometimes mention a gentleman named Brad. He's made small cameos a couple times. Uh, but he works on our audio team. And he's going to come onto the show a little bit later to talk about two really friggin' great Spider-Man issues by Denny O'Neill and Frank Miller, of course, uh, if you have been paying attention to the comics world, uh, we lost writer, editor, sort of mentor to many, Denny O'Neill, recently. And so we decided um, we were going to have Brad on, and, and we picked issues that uh, he chose. Then two of these were um, these issues. Uh, they were right in his wheelhouse when he was reading as a youngster. And they're friggin' they're great. Yeah, they're incredible. Having read those issues, it was so much fun, and I can't wait to talk to Brad about it. Um, but first... Uh, Ryan, before we dive into all that goodness, we have brand new Marvel Comics coming your way. Listeners, uh, headed to your local comic shop. I believe we have eight of them, and there is some good stuff in here. Ryan, let's dig into it. I'll start with 2020 Rescue number two. It's written by Dana Schwartz with breakdowns by Jason Burroughs, finishes by Scott Hanna, colors by Pete Pantazis, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Uh, we've also, I, I want to I wanna say as, as I dig into this uh, issue a little bit, we've been throwing some recaps, some really handy recaps of what's been going on in uh, just in the plots and the narratives of uh, uh, of every single new Marvel comic that's been coming out. It's on Marvel.com. So even for me, these recaps have been super, super handy just in terms of getting a little refresher before diving back into the narratives, reminding the big beats of what's been going on in these stories. Uh, but like I said, we are diving into 2020 Rescue, one of these uh, issues that, of course, revolves around the world of Tony Stark and uh, Arno Stark and everybody in the 2020 business. And this one, of course, is all about Pepper Potts. I really, really enjoy the way that Dana uh, writes this character. And I love the restraint specifically because I think a, a story like this or a character like this, a character that maybe maybe people know first and foremost as the person and then maybe the superhero second, which I actually think is quite a unique dynamic in the Marvel Universe. So it's cool to see that being taken advantage of because as we progress through this story, which is a really interesting Hydra story, um, we get to know Pepper continually. We, we, we saw how this creative team tackles his character in issue number one, of course, but I love the restraint to not just dive straight into the rescue action, to actually see how uh, Pepper will deal with the situation uh, first. And then, of course, you get the delight of seeing Rescue uh, come in as the story progresses. Uh, and it's really, really awesome. Kudos to the entire team. I know um, this is one of Dana's first forays into comics in general. And I thought, for better or worse, you can really tell when someone's new to the game. But this one I thought was really beautifully done. And uh, if I didn't know the credits on this page, I'd just think it was a completely seasoned hand. Uh, so kudos to all involved. 
Agreed. Uh, this also, if you need another reason, it's Pepper Potts versus Hydra's institutional and casual sexism, which and, and she she beats it up, and it's great. Um, all right, up next is Captain America Marvel's Snapshots Number One, written by Mark Russell, art by Ramon Perez, colors by Rico Renzi, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Uh, with great cover by Alex Ross. And of course, this is the series that is sort of curated and put together by Kurt Busiek in the tradition of Marvels, uh, sort of telling different sides of the Marvel Universe, sort of giving a perspective from the ground up in different events. We've seen these Marvel snapshots, these Marvel's snapshots issues have been some of my favorites that have come out. And this one uh, is no different. I was not expecting this story to be this and it was so good this story is set alongside the mad bomb arc you know classic captain america story one of you know the greatest kirby captain america epics and it's like kirby's return to captain america in the 70s that originally ran in captain america and the falcon from issues 193 to 200 so that's 1975 1976 get you a sense of time and place um and so what Mark and Ramon do, they weave the Mad Bomb nightmare, the Mad Bomb like basically turning people into crazed, violent, uh, just almost monsters of themselves. And they hurt their friends and, and neighbors and, and family. And it's just, it was horrible. And they weave that part of it into what was actually going on in the South Bronx in the 70s and 80s. Um, very scary for a lot of folks, but there were people still living there, people still trying to get by. And this um, is a story about a young man named Felix who is caught in that in the Venn diagram of the Mad Bomb and the South Bronx of the 1970s. And it's so good. He's like this really smart kid who um, is trying to like part of him wants to get out from his surroundings. But part of him is like, well, I, I, I can't leave. There's still much to do here. Uh, there's this amazing panel here, and Ramon Perez just crushing it as always. Panel, it's like two panels, a couple captions. Caption says, poverty isn't just being poor. It's the knowledge that you're missing out on life. And it's Felix's dad apologizing for not having the money to send Felix to college. And he's just like, I'm sorry. And the, the, the caption finishes, and the feeling that you were to blame for it. And I, it's just such a gut punch like you, you immediately feel how these characters feel, what's going on. Um, ultimately, yes, Captain America's involved and Falcon's involved and it's got aim and it's got, you know, cool superpowers and, and Ramon and Rico do some brilliant work, especially in, in some of the layouts and the flow of the action. But the story of Felix, like I was like reading this, I was like, wow, I love to know where this you know, this kid who, you know, 30, you know, 25, 30 years, or 40 years almost on, where's he now? What's he doing now? I would love to know what happened to him because I think that's such a rich possibility for uh, potential with his story. High, high, high recommendation for this issue. Uh, yeah, great stuff there. Really enjoyed it. But now we move on to Empire Number Zero Avengers and look, I was excited for Empire um, back when we were in the office. Couldn't wait for it to start. Um, and so my engines have been revving 
waiting for this incredible event to unfold. This issue is written by Al Ewing with art by Pepe Larraz, colors by Marte Gracia, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I'll start there because Pepe, oh man, did I miss ya. Pepe did, obviously, the work on House of X, some landmark stuff that I think propelled him into the stratosphere of Marvel artists, and rightly so. This is an enormous story. It's it's a story that feels tonally in line with where we're going. It's this really interesting mixture of Avengers story, and really specifically... Jason Aaron Avengers, in a way, that I love. Um, it's this great mixture of that kind of Avengers story, but at the same time, it has that giant, like, royal intrigue, uh, kind of the hands of, of the kind of larger hands at work at all times. You can feel it. And uh, that's how we enter this story in a really visceral, really cool way. Um, before we jump in with our heroes, there's an amazing, I don't want to say this is a, one of those that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty cagey about just because it's so highly anticipated, this entire Empire story. But there is this part with a, uh, a Cree century-ish, that's all I'll say, that is so <laughs> cool. It is, it's kind of the story firing at all cylinders. Every Avenger is so deeply involved in such cool and specific character-specific ways that I love. The conversations that are happening as this is all going down is so cool. And then just the scale of the story is executed so beautifully. You feel the ground beneath your feet shaking. That's a credit to the way that Al writes it. That's a credit to the way that Pepe pencils it. And definitely a credit to Marte Gracia's colors as well. And from there, we're just going. We are off. I was super excited as well, because this is a book about the Avengers, has Avengers in the title, to see where and how the Fantastic Four would become involved. That's very interesting to me. Um, uh, and that is kind of one of the... One of the big dynamics at play in Empire at Large as we move forward that I'm super pumped to see. But to have so many giant pieces of this puzzle, to express the concept of a an intergalactic war like this is really hard to capture the scale of that. But somehow, of course, somehow this team does it. Um, but uh, yeah, this is just one of those kind of perfect little prelude stories, something that will you know, kind of rocket you directly into the larger empire um, narrative. And um, yeah, I was excited before and I'm even more excited now. Speaking of perfect prelude stories, let's talk about Immortal Hulk number 34. All right, this issue is written by Al Ewing with guest pencils by Butch Geis Inks by guest inker Tom Palmer, uh, colors by Paul Mounts, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And man, this issue freaking ruled. And it is, it feels... Uh, as I mentioned, kind of like a prelude to things to come. Uh, it is all about the leader, a.k.a. Samuel Stearns, one of Hulk's arch nemeses. Um, and really, if you ever wanted to know what his deal was, what, like what what's the leader all about? He's a green guy and he's got a big head. This is a deep dive into him and then sort of a deep dive, but through the lens of everything Al has been writing in Immortal Hulk. And then taking that and putting it into now leader's point of view. And it's amazing. It is terrifying. It is weird. It's definitely a bit sad. Ultimately, it's incredible how it frames everything and how you 
like you read this and you, at least I do, look back at all the other leader stories with fresh eyes. I think it's kind of how you look at a lot of Hulk stuff in light of what we've learned through Immortal Hulk. Um, and Butch Guys rules. We recently saw him on Invaders and he's just, he does that like dark and gritty realism and then you take that and turn it and bring it into a horror story like this. I, man, I, th- this book somehow continues to absolutely amaze me. Totally. Back to the world of 2020 now with Iron Man 2020 number four. It's written by Dan Slott and Christos Gage with art by Pete Woods, colors by Celeste Woods with Pete Woods, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, this issue really took me by surprise. I gotta be honest. Um, I've been a big fan of what Dan has been doing, um, from the very beginning of, uh, his run with Tony Stark, Iron Man, playing with this concept of AI in a very new way, in a way that's very integrated into the reality of the story. Um, and, uh, the realm that, uh, Tony Stark is, is kind of exploring and playing with. And that obviously fed directly into Iron Man 2020, everything going on with Arno Stark, Arno Stark's kind of crackdown on, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, in general. This issue though, I think it, it somehow ends up being like simultaneously this crazy, like robot revolution, giant battle, um, story, um, with, mixed in with the the really cool i think comic book medium perfect conceit of the kind of leaping between the virtual reality and the world reality um which allows this story to do really interesting things visually it allows you know i think dan and christos the entire crew can do some really cool things and pull some very specific strings in your brain in terms of what they're asking you to think about how you're thinking about it the kind of connotations that you have with the different ways that things are presented it's so so cool and ends up being a book about tony stark in a way that i don't think we've really seen in a while in a in a way that's very personal in a way that really hits home in some really, really great ways and some powerful ways. Also, great cat stuff happening in this issue. I'll leave that. Dr. Shapiro fans, come out for this one. Um, uh, uh, Such good stuff there, which I really loved. But um, yeah, we're we're quickening as we get towards the end. It's it's, um, getting better and better. Yeah, and uh, we just announced that in September, Christopher Cantwell is launching a new Iron Man book. So see how this leaves Iron Man at the end of 2020. But yeah, can't wait for that. Tucker, if someone, if one of your coworkers, let's say former This Week in Marvel correspondent Christine Din said, hey, something happened to our boss. Will you weekend at Bernie's him with me? <laughs> Would you do it? Um, oh, um, um, yeah. You know what? Yeah. Yes, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I like that. Uh, there's a Weekend of Bernie's reference moment in here with Herbie that I yeah. just love. Uh, all right. Another great issue in a wrap-up to a limited series is Spider-Ham number five, written by Zeb Wells, art by Will Robson, colors by Eric Arciniega, and letters by V.C. Joe Caramagna. Uh, I did not know what uh, was happening at first because the book opens with a Family Guy parody, which I was like, <laughs> wait, what is – Am I, am I okay? What's <laughs> happening here? Uh, but it was really good. It's real weird and layered. And then it's 
fun and how you see things going in and, and on and on and on. There's a bunch of Spider-Ham themed versions of shows that are mentioned in here. And one of them is Robot Piggin, P-I-G-G-I-N, which is gross, but also very funny. And writer Zeb Wells wrote and helped launch the, the studio that creates Robot Chicken, um, which is wild. Uh, yeah, this, this book is nuts. Uh, there's a great panel in here where Mojo is being accosted by, uh, you know, the members of Spider-Ham's universe. And he says, ah, get off me. Your little hands feel so weird. <laughs> just like, that's such a perfect and specific line that you know exactly like, oh, there's sometimes just the word grand. weird just hits on like any other. And I love it. Yep. I love <laughs> Yeah. It's pure Zeb. It's so much fun. Uh, Mojo is terrific. There's a thing that he does. Mojo does to our Spider-Man here, which I didn't fully get it at first. And then when it starts to happen, I was like, Oh, you son of a gun. This is pure evil. Uh, it is fantastic. This, this limited series sort of like, does this slow build and it's like it starts to peel the layers of what it's actually doing i think i immediately want zeb and will to do tons more with spider ham or if they get more mojo stories whether they're doing together or separate i think the two of them together with these like anthropomorphic or weird creatures or like really out of the box stuff works so so well so so well totally all right i'm wrapping it up uh, on my side of things this week with Star Wars Bounty Hunters number three. It's written by Ethan Sachs with art by Paolo Villanelli, colors by Arif Prianto, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. I'll just say from the start, Paolo Villanelli, wow. The art in this is so incredible. It is so kinetic, full of so much energy, and uh, I think it just keeps you uh, bouncing along the entire time. Somehow it feels light on its feet and so dramatic at the same time, which is uh, a really big feat. I love the way that he shows characters moving. I love the way that he shows characters kind of faces and expressions. I love the very basic premise um, of this Star Wars Bounty Hunters series because it's playing with that idea of like honor among thieves. It's, it's that thing of like these characters who we know from the off aren't necessarily the good guys. Um, and in fact, sometimes they're very specifically spelled out as the not good guys, but they have their own code. They have their own way of doing things. Uh, and so when you can enter that world and utilize those dynamics and kind of just accept that as our truth, our reality, it's really cool because what is right is right in the story, but you kind of lose the fact very intentionally that it might not be right, objectively speaking, just in the world and in terms of just uh, how we would normally judge things. But you get so invested in the story that you're right there alongside the characters, no matter the decisions they're making. I think that's really, really cool. So as we follow Valence along in this story, um, I, I, I somehow become more and more of a Valence fan as we've gone along, which I think is a huge testament to everyone who's been involved on this story, everyone who's really been involved in bringing Valence to the forefront of 
Star Wars canon via the comics in general. I know Matt Rosenberg did some work with Valence because he's one of those characters that I I remember when we first started reading um, Valence's reentry into you know from Legends back into canon um, in some uh, Star Wars comics. I remember thinking like. Eh, this guy, he really feels like a 80s kind of creation. He really just feels like, you know, someone riffing on the Terminator or something and putting it in Star Wars and feeling a bit anachronistic in that way, or at least enjoying the kind of kitsch value of a character that felt like of a different era. But with every single passing story, I felt more and more like oh yeah, this character is completely seated in the reality of Star Wars. I love the way that he looks. I love the way that we journey along with his reasoning in a story like this. There's an awesome throwdown with Bosk in here that I think is so cool. Bosk, of course, one of the classic, classic bounty hunters. But again, it's those complex relationships that we continue to explore. And I think when you humanize a character that way, when you allow us to enter this world alongside a character like Valence in all of their positives and all their negatives, I think you can get get away with a lie as long as, you know, the story is presented authentically and as long as the art is as incredible as it is here. Um, but, you know, I'm at the point now where, and I, you know, I, it must be said, I'm just like, oh yeah, Valence, great Star Wars character. Really cool, totally at home in this galaxy. And um, that's really cool. I love that 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 meta aspect of it, especially having remembered Ryan sitting down and recording episodes with you when we were talking about this character for the very first time. Um, so to end up here is um, a testament to all the work that Ethan and Paolo and everyone has done with this series. All right, last of the new batch this week, we have Thor number five, written by Donny Cates, art by Nick Klein, colors by Matthew Wilson, letters and design by VCs Joe Sabino. Um, I, you know what I love? One of the many things I love about Mr. Donny Cates, he swings. He, he like steps up to the plate and he's like, okay, I'm going to go for it. And sometimes people like push back on, on things that he wants to do, but he tries to make changes in the Marvel universe. He tries to make a stamp. He tries to tell stories that are big and sweeping and do wild stuff. And this issue has some moments in it and revelations and sort of updates and changes. And I think of like Silver Surfer Black and other stuff that he's been doing of late, like he's going for it and he's making a mark and planting a flag that says, I moved the Marvel universe two feet this way. Um, you know, in the larger tapestry, all the writers and artists, some of them move it, some of them keep it going, some of them turn it around. Like there's, everybody has their own thing, but I think Donnie always shoots to try to get something moved. So all that is to say that this Thor story is really like trying to make some really interesting movements for not only Thor, but for Galactus, for the Marvel universe, for sort of the history that we know, um, for the future that we know. It's really cool. Uh, I don't want to get into the spoilers of it all because it's really cool as you get into it, but there's some moments where I'm like, oh, dang, that's where we're going? I like that. Uh, but for like just top level, you got Beta Ray Bill in here who is the best friend we all truly need in this world. He's just like full of forgiveness, ready to help. He is pure and mighty and wonderful, and he looks like a horse. Why would you not want to be best friends with Bill? So good. Uh, there's also a panel of Thori and Lockjaw playing on the Rainbow Bridge. So you know this issue rules hardcore. I don't want to give anything else away. It's a big 
throwdown issue with lots of like crazy sweeping images that Nick just absolutely crushes and Matt's colors on all of Nick's uh, pencils. Just amazing. It's amazing, amazing stuff. Really, really good. Um, and I'm glad we're back to getting new issues of this run uh, and seeing where they go with it. Yeah, uh, but those are the new single comics out this week. We also have print and digital collections, including Amazing Fantasy Omnibus, Hardcover, Fantastic Four, Epic Collection, The Name is Doom, Iron Man, The Ultron Agenda, Marvel vs. Black Widow, Morbius, The Living Vampire, Omnibus, and Yandu Trade Paperback. Uh, that Yandu Trade, I think, is I highly suggest that one. That one is really great. And on Marvel Unlimited, we have a bunch of really great highlights. The uh, last issue of the Agents of Atlas series, so that one's complete. Uh, fifth issue of Future Foundation, so that's complete. Guardians of the Galaxy, number 12 by Donnie and uh, and company, so that's a complete series. You can read that. Gwenpool Strikes Back, number 5. History of the Marvel Universe, number 6. Invaders, number 12. King Thor, number 4. Marvel Spider-Man Velocity, number 5. All of those, completing those runs, uh, so you can read full stories and lots, lots more. Um, it's a great week for Marvel Unlimited, a great week for new comics. That's right. All right, that's what we have available digitally at your local comic shop everywhere uh, this week. So much good stuff. But now, Ryan, let's talk to our friend, Brad Barton. Brad, welcome to Marvel's Pull List. I feel like you've never heard this show before, and then you're fresh <laughs> and new to mm-hmm. our whole experience. I'm not entirely familiar with what happens here, um, other than the fact that sometimes I show up to make you burgers uh, or knock you out. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, that mm-hmm. was not completely my choice, but uh, otherwise, <laughs> it's an exciting new world for me, guys. Yeah. Um, for for our listeners who bravely make it to the very end of an episode uh, and who hear us mention the enigmatic Brad at the end of every episode and who has maybe never heard the cameos you've had before, Brad, who are you and what do you do? Who are you? <laughs> who am I? <laughs> uh, so I am an audio development manager uh, at uh, Marvel in the new media department, which means that I get to work with Jorge and MR and you guys and all of the other amazing audio producers to help craft delicious nuggets of audio podcast glory for everyone's ears out there. And um, it's awesome. It's great. There's nothing wrong with this job at all. Brad, Tucker. there are some questions that I have for you that I've never had the forum to ask before, <laughs> but now I feel that I do. I love where this is going. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make this sound as ominous as possible. Successful. This gets into some Marvel land, um, House of Ideas HQ esoterica rather quickly, but nevertheless, it gets to an end that is about you, Brad. Um, did, did you do like like uh performance and like like comedy and stuff like like in college and back in the day and stuff um i did uh oh wow we're we're going way back <laughs> um yeah uh, many many decades of my life actually have been with comedy um especially improv um yeah. in a previous life um i ran gotham city improv the now defunct gotham city improv here in New York City and uh, met a lot of amazing people there, including my wife. And she is still an improviser oh, wow. and I still am myself occasionally. And actually, you mentioned college. Way back in college, I went to school with a fellow Marvel New Media staffer, Liza Wiles. 
and we yes. made sketch comedy together and student films. She and I and a lot of another uh, other awesome friends um, all the time for four years. Uh, the shenanigans uh, flowed like a river, and it was uh, See, good times. That's what I wanted to to get at because I am. Um, uh, 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 for listeners, Liza is another one of the, the crucial folks who works behind the scenes in Marvel and the media uh, in a bunch of different roles. And I'm a big fan of both of yours. And I just love, I love that image <laughs> of these, these young college bucks doing weird comedy stuff. Um, it brings me great joy. Let me segue back in to our current pathways of conversation. Um, would you say that improv or comedy impact your job um, at Marvel now? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, anyone who has spent any amount of time with improv, it sort of starts to rewrite your brain a little bit and becomes your religion. So everything becomes the idea of being open to new ideas um, and that no idea is really a bad idea, even if it's not the idea you run with, but it is sort of the jumping off point for something else. Um, I could talk about this all day long, uh, but at the risk <laughs> of sounding like I'm doing a corporate workshop, <laughs> I, I will spare you. But uh, yeah, for, for sure. I think it's amazing. And I think it's probably telling that from what I understand, a healthy chunk of Marvelites uh, both in new media as well as in publishing and writers and artists, a lot of people have come from performance and improv. And I think that's probably not a mistake. Um, it just sort of blows your brain wide open in the best possible ways. Yeah, that's awesome. This is uh, our producer, Jorge, really wants this to be our Father's Day episode, <laughs> even though Jorge doesn't understand that you do holiday episodes before or up to and on said holiday <laughs> but i will humor 62 days to go <laughs> yeah uh, i will humor young jorge who is not a father uh and this is my this has been my first father's day so i'm very excited yeah. but when you, you mentioned uh brad that you met your wife uh in improv and you have kids you're a dad i i i fascinated by the idea of two improvers as parents in like the, <laughs> that's a great point that it could be the best thing and truly the absolute <laughs> worst thing knowing you i think it, it's, it's a great thing but um the, has that rubbed off at all on your kids <laughs> um on on my oldest a little bit uh so he took classes with my wife uh because my wife still very actively teaches classes out in new jersey so he took classes with her for a little while before, you know, becoming a teenager and like, I don't think I want to do it anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's he's still very into performing arts. So but what does that mean for like from his perspective for these like, oh, God, they're doing it again. They're doing it again. <laughs> um, the bits at the dinner table are probably <laughs> nonstop, chock-a-block. Here they go again, <laughs> which I love. I love the idea of that of you two just like going yes anding through the whole meal and the kids are just like oh <laughs> it uh it, it happens probably not as frequently as people might like to believe it happens usually it's boring old dinners <laughs> like everyone else but every once in a while yes we will definitely start on some run of something yes anding each other or like there the quick answer is probably there is an uncomfortable 
uh, amount of character work done at our meals sometimes. So. <laughs> okay, I see where it's all coming to. That's great. Uh, but you, we we are here on a Marvel show talking about Marvel stuff. Um, and you of of you know I've seen I've been at Marvel a long time and I've seen our group in particular expand incredibly over the last couple of years. Um, and I I enjoy your uh, your knowledge base because you get all the weird small references you make little asides to quirky Marvel things. What's your Marvel backstory? How'd you get into comics? Oh man. Um, yes, I do love all the little quirky side bits. I came to Marvel as a kid. Um, well, I, I had already been, I had been reading Marvel star Wars, um, because my entire pop culture life was forged in the furnace of star Wars. Um, so I, uh, found the star Wars series, like oh man around issue seven eight or nine like those first sort of original post movie stories where suddenly it's you know han and chewy and jackson the big green rabbit um in those stories and uh just couldn't get enough and then really quickly it wasn't long before i started dipping my toe into other uh, marvel books and and never looked back reading like hey this spider-man is great iron man is great i love this um and uh just kept going and going to the point that somewhere in the mid 80s i don't know how i got from like i like these three books to somewhere in the mid 80s i bought everything and i mean everything that Marvel put out probably for a good five or six years. So like, you know, the, the stuff from the Epic line bought it. Was it age appropriate? No. Did I buy it? Yes. Um, everything from like the star comics kids line, I was getting all that. I mean, I go through my collection. Like I don't even have a recollection of purchasing or reading this. And yet nonetheless, you know, here is the full run of top US dog. One. You got a full run of top dog. Heck yeah. Top dog. Uh, Heath oh boy. <laughs> Heathcliff's Funhouse, um, oh. Team America, US One. I love, love the obscure stuff. I really love it, as I've probably told you. It was a, it was, it was a difficult decision to not just do a, a new universe episode. Here. <laughs> yes, the new universe. Um, I think I own everything from the new universe, and is is the perfect case in point. <laughs> I'll look at it like, I I don't know who Nightmask is, and yet here are. 15 issues of this guy yeah but if you want to follow a team a football team who gets you know involved in superpowers and stuff kickers inc is your jam if you are missing sports right now fans oh get yourself uh some kickers inc i'm I'm so sorry for the fans that (laughs) that missed kickers inc and had to wait all wait all the way until nfl uh sports pro uh, to really get super there. pro super come on pro. you fake super. fan well that was the early 90s <laughs> and what can i tell you man oh yeah <laughs> Oof, sadly that's pro. when i was at college and i shifted over to comedy with liza and walked away from comics a little bit wasn't <laughs> in the go. budget what can i tell you uh so we are going to be talking about two denny o'neill books here um two from during his time on amazing spider-man but before we even get into those i was looking at um how Denny broke in and he started at Marvel in 1966. Uh, the, the story goes that Roy Thomas brought him in former Marvel comics editor in chief, former, you know, like assistant to Stan Lee. And it's like, 
you know, if Roy's like, I got this guy, then Stan's like, I'm sure, like, great, bring him in. You know, we need bodies. Fill the <laughs> fill some slots. But I was looking at particularly uh, Denny's first works with Marvel. Uh, Patsy and Hetty, Millie the Model, Strange Tales, Modeling with Millie, um, you know, a lot of like a mix of weird, you know, mid 60s uh, monster stories or like sci fi stories and the the stuff that was like more romance. And uh, like, it's a fascinating way for a guy to break in who now we think of as one of the definitive writers for Batman, one of the guys who really did some great work on Spider-Man and Daredevil. And it's like the, the way he comes into Marvel and really comics, it's fascinating to me, which man, what a guy. Totally agree. You're right. It, it is one of those amazing, like I just sort of stumbled in here. I thought I, I read somewhere even that the Marvel writing test that was given to him by Stan, he sort of did like on a lark, like, well, I could do this or the crossword. Eh, I'll do the writing test. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that, that's part of it too. Yeah, it's it's wild. Tucker had um, had have you read much Denny O'Neill work? I think mostly just incidentally, um, uh, because I know I have, um, but I couldn't even tell you which which issues are run specifically. But um, it was funny when we were reading the couple of issues that we selected here, which I'll just say uh, aloud now, it were um, Amazing Spider-Man Annuals number 14 and 15. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, uh, it, was, it was really interesting, especially in the context of what we're talking about right now, because with issue number 14, it's so kind of... It has such a specific flavor of being just out there to me. Like there's so much weird, fun stuff happening that has its, I don't know, it's something that you can tell for me that in in certain other ways, I think we've talked about John Byrne maybe in, in similar ways where we look back, I think semi-recently we looked back at some of John Byrne's early work um, and then we were like, oh yeah, this is, this. you can see what made perfect sense for him to go on to Fantastic Four, go on to the work that he later went on to do. And I felt similarly here with um, Denny's work, but as it relates to uh, Batman, in this way that it is, I think when you when you're dealing with something like that, there is a um, a, t- a twinge of unreality, of kind of dark, strange unreality to the to the brightly colored reality that we normally uh, expect or live in in the Marvel Universe. And it's very difficult to articulate, but um, it's more of a feeling than something that you can point to and say, here, 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 this is why I'm thinking this. But that was really, really cool to see and something that, you know, again, it's just one of those things where you go, well, of course this person went to have the career that they went to have. And maybe it's something that it's something I end up thinking about a lot is the kind of self-fulfilling kind of prophecy element of it is it's just like this person's skills were self-evident and led them to want to create those kind of stories. You know, we're looking at, I'm looking at this in hindsight, so it makes perfect kind of A, B, C sense, but it's both that, but it's also like, oh, this character 
you know, called them at the same time for a specific reason and, and, and led them into this way because it, you can see what the, the, the character maybe has in common with the creator in terms of sensibility, in terms of what um, a, a great story might ask for in, in any given um, kind of context like that. But um, yeah, it was so looking at it, you know, with the full broad context of the work that Denny O'Neill did was really fun um, when digging into these issues. To that point, uh, Tucker, since since Denny passed away um, recently, a lot of other creators, especially ones that he had worked with, have been posting um, quotes online or some websites have gathered quotes. And I did find a quote from Neil Adams, who he did tons of work with, of course, especially a lot of the Batman work, who said, Denny was a reporter on the night beat. His life wasn't filled with monsters, ray-blasted cities, exploded worlds, and the like. He, his was a dirty underbelly of urban sprawl, domestic violence, and bloody hospital emergency rooms, which is a super mm. evocative quote, of course, but I think speaks to your point of like, um, Denny was interested in the reality and the, the grittiness and um, the tough choices that characters have to make on a very human level. Hence his, almost the sum total of his, of his run on Iron Man, which was all about Tony hitting rock bottom. I mean, it jumped off of the demon in the bottle storyline and Tony was never in good shape during the entirety of Danny O'Neill's time on that book. Um, he was just struggling. And um, I think that that some of that grittiness carries over, not as intensely to these Spider-Man annuals, but um, still has a little bit of like, you can feel the dirt of New York city in these stories. Oh yeah. Yeah. It definitely, especially in, in, I guess in both of them in, in very different ways, which let's get into um, the the teams on these books. So Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 14 released September 16th, 1980, written by Denny O'Neill, drawn by Frank Miller, which is important um, as we can't not talk about oh, no. Frank's work on here. It's so good. And um, it'll play into the next issue as well. Inks by Tom Palmer, who I love Tom Palmer's work. Colors by Ben Sean. Letters by Joe Rosen. Um, the, the thing that struck me, uh, my first note that I wrote down in this one was that Spidey goes to CBGB, which uh, <laughs> is so this is 1980. Uh, CBs has been around for a little while. I, I went to CBs a ton in the 90s when I was you know, a young punker and I, CBS was terrible. It is, was a garbage place to see shows. It was a terrible <laughs> venue. The sound system was awful. The like bathrooms were just despicable. Everything about it was awful. And that added to its mystique. So it gave me such a chuckle seeing Spidey go to CBGB during kind of its heyday and seeing like a punk band play there and the crowd going and it's just I found that so fascinating and the fact that this was in a Marvel book and it wasn't like a glamour shot it was like a midnight show it was nasty part like this is the bad times of New York City so this is real fascinating just putting that piece into this larger tapestry that this issue is I'm so much of it makes me think of Serpico Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like down to the, like the bloody hospital rooms or like quote that you said brad where i'm just like it's so in that vein to me of just like it's so real it's it has that great like it, what's so fun about it is it has all that kind of that reality and that darkness to it but you you also know that denny's bringing the spider-man 
side of himself to it, which is so great because it does have that ineffable quality of a Spider-Man story. And he's aware that he's writing a Spider-Man story and it's appropriately a Spider-Man story. But at the same time, it's so much else. It is so much else. This is an oversized issue, uh, and there are so many characters. There's so much stuff going on, and and I say that all because it's it it, it all lands so wonderfully at the same time, and it's a real feat. The um this this title page uh, reminds me a little bit of the opening page to the Asgardian Wars annuals that um, Arthur Adams drew. The, where the new mutants and the x-men they go to oh, yeah um go to asgard there's a like a, a like a special edition it's a two or three parter but it's so good and those opening pages are like herculean works of intricate beauty that arthur is well known for and it's but in this it's so cool and gritty and it's not what i think of when i look at when i think about frank miller's work and i i love that that is what this issue does it like takes me out of what I, I think of a traditional frank miller story in a lot of ways as in terms of art part of that i think has to go to tom palmer because i look at this art and i look at like tom's inks here he he has like this like i don't want to say grittiness because it's not gritty like you know gritty in the city because that's more like klaus jansen would work with frank but tom palmer has the, like little details and he really gets into it, the fine fineness of it and you see that in the way that the, the 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 shading and everything for the monsters on this i just i was hooked from the first page here uh and it, this book never let me go and yet i would i would then say that the frank millerness uh in the art style almost immediately comes back when we're seeing like this lightning over dr doom's castle and this science dungeon that's like five stories high um between the lighting there and uh, jumping backwards and forwards to CBGB at the same time that so much of the CBGB scene when we're seeing this is, uh, I want to say shot, shot in silhouette also. So you can see the band behind them playing, but uh, the action in the foreground is all um, in silhouette. There's a lot of gorgeous Frank Millerness going on here. Yeah, there's there's a shot of Deb Whitman in the rain yeah. later on in, yes. the, in the issue, which is like that is one of the most Frank Miller panels that Frank Miller ever Frank Millered, and I love it. Like just the way, like the frame of her face, the size of her glasses, the expression on her face, like everything about it. It's so terrific. Um, man, this book was really cool. The 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 quick conceit is uh, we mentioned Stephen Strange, we mentioned of course this is Spider Man, and it's Doctor Doom and Dormammu teaming up but not really teaming up to just like do some stuff and they dr strange and spider-man get wrapped up in it and like the that's the basic sort of like all you need to know and it's super fun it's so awesome how long it takes spider-man to get involved in this story because i i i could be wrong but i think it's not until like page 15 or so that you even see Peter Parker or Spider-Man at all, which for a book called Amazing Spider-Man, I think is so bold uh, and so interesting. We start in Latveria. We have this crazy scheme of like Dormammu and this like mystical technological like plan to unleash this crazy ancient like evil on the world. Um, and then there's this very... Uh, 
specific and well-coordinated attack on Doctor Strange, the only one who can stop that. Um, and uh, the moment when Strange kind of tries to, like, jump into his astral form um, to kind of, like, he's like, oh, whoa, this is, like, a real deal. Let me, I need to kind of level up here. And even that has been kind of accounted for. Uh, and then the idea, so then the idea that, um, like, the Fantastic Four and the Avengers aren't around to help. And so all of that is just this great story thing that just says, well, Spider-Man maybe? <laughs> uh, because like even the story itself is saying that like maybe he's not really the best equipped to help out this time because it's this crazy mystical uh, threat. Um, but he's there. So I guess he'll jump into it, which I just love. It's putting him up against the odds in a story sense in a way that we've seen so many different times in these character ways or in these ways that are specific to just Spidey that we usually see through his point of view. But we enter this story through like three or four other characters' perspectives first, and we really get a sense of the threat. And then it's like, oh, and here's your, quote, main character. And now we fully realize how ill-equipped he is for this story. I think it's just so masterfully done. I love that. I think it's probably worth mentioning also uh, the the other villain in this who basically is a pawn of Doom and Dormammu, uh, and that would be Dilby. And, uh, Dilby! Dilby. <laughs> Again, to your point, um, Tucker, that, there's, that so much time is spent not on Spider-Man that um, Dilby is all over this thing, and maybe the fact that he's just the i don't know such a nebbishy looking little dude who manages to completely kick the butt of dr strange um right out of the gate with with his big magical robot that looks like some sort of armored up version of baymax from big hero 6 or something like that um yeah D dilby's ridiculous little role in all this thing that he goes from uh being a troublingly <laughs> powerful sorcerer to like I got knocked down in front of CBGBs and you got my pants dirty. You'll all pay, you know, <laughs> such a weird character. I, lo I love Dilby so much. And it is sad that this is his only appearance. I think there's, there's a finality to what happens at the end, but that's such an easy thing to pick up. If you are like writing a Dr. Doom story or a Dr. Strange story, like there's an easy way to, bring this character back i want to like i feel like i want to send this to to one of the editors and just be like hey look here's a character who could be the next major villain <laughs> in the marvel universe his name is dilby <laughs> just sitting there ready to be just unleashed and He's like sitting for 30 sitting years <laughs> building hatred and anger and maybe hearing some spells and like learning Man, Dilby will have a reckoning. This I foresee. <laughs> you know, to what you said, Brad, about the Frank Millerness of it all, really does come across more as you book. go through the book. It's that first page that really like looks so different from everything else I think of, but it, it really is such a, a wonderful, um, weird Frank Miller, you know, drawn book. It you know, it's sorcery and it's fun, but it's also got New York City. And it's gritty and it's grimy. It's all that stuff. Of course, Denny pulling all those different pieces together and his Spider-Man 
full of quips and and lots of fretting and he's like trying to do this over here he's trying to be you know uh, he's trying to like connect with this the the woman deb whitman but he's just constantly failing her uh and he's you know messing up all around i i love his denny i love denny spider-man and i i'm not super familiar with his spider-man run um this is right during the bulk of his amazing spider-man time right yeah i think so um over in the main book uh he was you know he sort of famously introduced madam webb and the hydro man so this is in the early 200s of that run i think you know we've we've mentioned uh, deb whitman a few times and it was not until rereading this that a flood of memories came back to me about poor deb whitman um who popped up a lot in the books uh in in the early 80s and that was just i mean even as a kid you'd look at that and think guys this relationship is not going to work. I mean, Deb, how many times does he just need to mysteriously disappear? Like stand up for yourself or just move on. Peter, like, would it kill Just try for once. And it happens in this book, right? Like Deb, I'm going to make it up to you and we're going to have a steak dinner. Oops, there's evil. Got to go. Like, oh, and she's just left standing in the rain with her giant round glasses again. Yeah. Ugh, the whole, the whole thing is it's a mess, <laughs> uh, but a wonderful mess. And um, yeah, this uh, this issue is 1980, and so our next issue is the next annual. And because it's an annual, it's one year later, September 1st, 1981, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 15. And it, it's fascinating because it's also written by Denny O'Neill, penciled by Frank Miller. Then you get inks and finishes by Klaus Janssen. Uh, who was longtime Frank Miller collaborator, colors by Bob Sharon, letters by Jim Novak. Uh, but if you said, hey, this writer and artist are doing one book and then they're going to do another book and they will be almost complete opposites, and you'd be like, mm, I don't know about that. They're probably going to be feel very similar. These so completely different. Yeah, you're you're totally right. If we got to play in in the mysticness and Spidey way out of his element in the previous one, this one, um, to to me is like a definitive Spider-Man story. It's got all of the ingredients that you really want. Um, a classic Spider-Man villain, um, two classic Spider-Man villains. Technically, if uh, we're looking at uh, where not only Doctor Octopus but where the Punisher was in Spider-Man mythos at the time. Um, well, they officially call him a villain yeah. um, and one of Spider-Man's villains uh, later in the issue. They sure do. They sure do. Um, we've got the Daily Bugle on this. We've got J. Jonah Jameson as an important role. Um, for sure, this uh, and, and, and wisecracking left and right, this really, really feels like uh, uh, classic Spider-Man. Fun fact about this book, um, again, going back in time, I distinctly remember buying uh amazing spider-man annual number 15 off the rack because i got this adrenaline rush that i had found amazing spider-man number 15 in a store <laughs> for 75 cents not annual 15 but regular series number 15 even though i had been actively buying issues like 220 and 221 but still somehow 17 or 18 years later after its original publication here it was how lucky was i because i I didn't know what an annual was, and I was not bright. What can I tell you? <laughs> Deadly combo. Yeah. But thank goodness I did, because it's an amazing read, and, you know, has it's been 
sitting with me for decades now and i'm I'm so thrilled because it's uh it truly is it's it's got it all as far as what you'd want from a spider-man story and this is the first time i've read either of these tucker had you read either of these before no i hadn't yeah and i yeah freaking love them They're yeah I, I i completely was as i was reading it that's brad to your point that's exactly my thought was just like wow this is playing all the hits here it also this one has a, a cool modern twinge to it in a way in a in a way that i love which is that thing that is a hallmark of many thrilling kind of adventure heroy villainy kind of stories which is like character a is chasing character b character b is chasing character c character c is chasing character a and like it's just this big circle of complex kind of things that that everyone at the table needs to manage at the same time so here that's like okay the punisher ends up going after doc ock um but uh after the fact that he's been kind of fighting with spider-man spider-man needs to handle punisher first and then he has to go and handle doc ock um, and in fact, at a certain point, he actually needs to save the Punisher, um, uh, which is just so cool. I love that that thing of just like you're chasing someone, but you're also being chased at the same time and having to deal with those all at once, um, uh, I think is a recipe for a really, really exciting story. And that's exactly what I was you know, feeling with this one. I think one of the cool things about this and uh, Danny O'Neill gets the credit for this is that there's a great um, recurring pattern in this book that keeps bringing you back. And that is seeing the front page layout of the Daily Bugle, literally page one. We're seeing Jonah trying to sell a Spider-Man threat or menace story to uh, Robbie Robertson. And like, I don't know, I think it's going to sell. Oh, Jonah, it's so played out. What are we doing? Um, and throughout the book, they keep uh, as as new uh, significant developments roll out in the story, they reset that front page and we see that front page like, okay, what do you think about this one? Oh, but then there's a new development. All right, hold the presses. How about this one? Um, which is really fun. And interestingly enough, probably is a little bit of a mirror of the device that they used in Annual 14 with the Book of the Fashanti, which we also keep coming back to to learn a little bit more of... Uh, uh, foreshadowing of what's about to happen in that story. This is a little bit of a reflection of what just happened in this one, but we just keep coming back to that same layout, same layout, same layout. And then the fact that that actually becomes part of the plot, if we're already jumping towards the end, that um, literally the printing process of the Daily Bugle becomes a massive plot point in the in the, <laughs> the final battle of this book is just the coolest. I love that. Man, you guys remember newspapers? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ryan, what's funny about that is, is you know, there's that plot point in this where, um, so Doc Ock uh, has, has a big uh, metal canister full of MacGuffin, right? It's the, it's the poison <laughs> um, that, that he wants to use and unleash on 5 million people in New York City. Uh, we also learn in the comic that the Daily Bugle has a circulation of 5 million people. And, and that was exactly the thought that I had of like, oh, to be a print publication before the digital age. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you get it in everybody's hands. It's, it's wild. I, 
as far as I know, Denny had a little um, experience working in newspapers, not a ton, but some, which I feel like sort of feeds into just how good and real and, and, and snappy this that whole um, sort of trope feels throughout the issue. I, it's one of my favorite things, seeing the, 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 how, how it starts at one, we go, we get like three or four different versions and, and the emotions that go through it all and how Jonah and Robbie, uh, you know, are back and forth and what they finally land on and how it ties back into some stuff that is said in the beginning and how it, like everything about it is so wonderfully like tied up with a bow, but not in a way where you're like, oh yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna tie this back up. It's just like, it's so eloquently done that it reminds you that, yeah, these are, these are the pros right here. It's Danny and Frank, even 30 years ago, and they're still young men, like they were on it. And it's so special. Um, There's a big splash page in here, which I, I can't help but just ogle and look at and love and it's spidey just swat s-w-o-t is the 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 onomatopoeia there for the the smack that spidey gives to doc ock and it's just a a little bit of blood coming off of ock's face the thing that we'll get to in a minute from one of the the back matter pages is a reminder of how strong spidey is and how every time he fights someone he holds back almost completely so at one point he's uh fighting the punisher on the rooftops and he goes to like punishers like blasting at him and they're going back and forth and he goes to draw like drop kick at punisher and you know he's probably pulled back a little bit and punisher moves out of the way because he's real quick he's slippery and spidey destroys a chimney like he uh, like obliterates a full brick part of a building and i'm like if he hit Punisher with that, Punisher would be in bad shape. Done, that would be a bad scene. He would crack some ribs. And like the shot of Spidey hitting Doc Ock, like Ock's just a dude. He's got an amazing, you know, brain and, and he's got the, the, the tentacles, but hitting him, he's basically like, you know, like whoop, smacking him with a, a finger almost. But, you know, I, I think that's a thing that we don't think about enough is how strong spider-man is and how everything he does when he fights most people is pulling back because he doesn't want to go too far which i i love that i so agree there's like so many layers to that and it's just such a cool device to utilize because when you do that and you utilize that as your your you use that as your status quo then you can you know pull that lever when you want to be like okay spidey he can't joke around anymore. He can't hold back anymore. He has to go for it. It's so cool. It's one of those subtle things. I totally agree. It's awesome. Yeah. There's also a great scene towards the end with Punisher giving himself up to the cops, uh, oh, yes. which I, I just, I, I really love that. It feels very relevant. It feels very um, key to reminding us who this character is in the eyes of the Marvel universe. Um, I think that that's something to keep in mind there. Uh, this issue has a bunch of bonus bits. Uh, so I was talking about Spidey's strength and how that plays into the way you think about things. One of my favorite bits, of course, written by Mark Grunwald, uh, is just how strong is Spider-Man? And it, it like, you know, think about this, this is 1981. So they, we probably hadn't done the handbooks yet. There's no trading cards. There's no internet to tell you like, all this stuff you get little bits and pieces like this but this for fans is like 
this is gold. So you can see Marvel telling you, or at least in Spider-Man's eyes, wink, wink, who like the rankings for characters. And I, I love this. Brad, uh, I'm sure you, when you first picked this up, were like through the moon. Oh, yeah. This is the sort of thing that you just stare at for hours and think, well, I didn't realize that this person was. Um, I, a, f- a few things on that. I think it's funny. I mean, you know that it's from 1981 uh, by the inclusion of some characters. Like, thank God we've got a power level on the Shroud. Thank goodness he's included <laughs> in this. Um, I also do think, to your point, that it's funny how how far Spidey, Spidey's voice, seems to bend over to say, yeah, this is my impression of how strong everyone is. And it says at the end, like, you can write in and say if you disagree, because I can only imagine the discussions in the bullpen and editorial in 1981 uh, as they try to, you know, rank who is the physically strongest in the Marvel universe, uh, even if it's just from Spider-Man's eyes, you know that there had to have been some editors that are like, eh, I don't want to put my character in like the second <laughs> or third class. I mean, come on, give him a little bit more credit. <laughs> yeah, I like I, I look at this and I even I was like, well, come on, guys, this isn't <laughs> like, let's let's think about this a little bit. You take the For thing sure. and he's not even in the top class. Submariner's not in the top class. The Silver Surfer's not in the top class. Yeah, I agree. Come on. Yes, uh, I've got major. Problems it's also with the super medium weights category, and I'm going to write a sternly <laughs> written letter. I really like. I do. I look at that. I'm like, She Hulk. She's heavyweight. Colossus. Colossus. I, I like Colossus. Even he's saying, "I'm still a teenager, Tovarish. You want you wait until I am grown." Which I was like, "Oh yeah, he's still young. He will get stronger." But I think of Colossus as very, very strong. I love this. And like on par with Spider-Man? Come on, get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but thankfully, we have Tucker's favorite character, the Aquarian, who uh, he, he gets to be listed in the medium weight. So, um, Wait, which one is he? <laughs> he's the one who looks like How Jesus. How dare you? Okay, I was going to bring this dude up. <laughs> I knew it. How'd you know? I knew it. I, I know you, Tucker. <laughs> that dude rules. Yes, and he his does. Quote is so like it's so enigmatic and kind of weird in a delightful way because he says the greatest strength of all is the strength to refrain from violence. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were gonna love him. It makes me it's so awesome. happy. Yeah. <laughs> There's also uh, some other back matter in here, like Peter Parker in the apartment, uh, and then the gallery of villains, some of what they say, a gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes, which I love. This is one of the reasons why I loved annuals as a kid, is like you get a great big story told, like sometimes it was a crossover, sometimes it was just something special and different, and then you get like bonus stuff that you would never see in the main book. So cool. For sure, for sure. I am I am that same kid right next to you. Um, those most famous foes pages, and it lists like here are all their appearances. So I think it's sort of telling that you know the Punisher is listed here as one of the most famous foes, and he's got like twelve stories to his name at this point. That I almost can't wrap my brain around that. Um, and things like here's the blueprints of Peter Parker's apartment. For sure. Like, I just stare at that all day long. Like, <laughs> this is awesome. Such a small apartment, too. Yeah, right. I, You know, my <laughs> wife and I are house hunting. And so I look at a lot of floor plans. 
And I'm like, oof, kid, you, whoa, that's a, that's, you need a little bit more space than that, but well, whatever. I guess I'm married, child, five cats. I feel like we're cramped anyway. Uh, the Punisher thing is really neat because it's five years before his limited series. So, like, he's not gotten to that point yet that, like, once you get to that mid-80s and he explodes and he's everywhere, um, that's a really cool point. Yeah, which I think makes his appearance in this annual really uh, all that much more interesting because he is a, he's an intense dude in this book, uh, very focused, and because he has not appeared everywhere yet, um, yeah, it makes him seem more dangerous and a little bit more mysterious. And when he does give himself up to the cops at the end with a, a we're on the same side, and the cops are like, cool whatever helps you get in the back of this car buddy yeah they're like i don't think the judge is gonna agree with that he's like you'll see and they're yeah. like no <laughs> yeah and, and leave leaving him with a, especially not knowing when we're gonna see him again but then the last time we see him is in the back of this squad car uh with the with the the shot the cinematography of the of the layout through the mesh with him basically saying oh yeah, I can go to jail because there's a lot of criminals there. A lot of criminals that you think, oh, Lord, Norman Bates. Okay, <laughs> you're just going to go to prison and um, have a field day. Have fun, buddy. Yeah. Uh, so those were two issues. Uh, Brad, thanks for helping us pick those. Hey, thanks for coming on the show, um, sharing a little bit about your background and um, you know, sort of the insight that helps us shape what this show is because you're one of the voices behind the scenes that helps us figure out what we're doing and how we do it and, and get the show out in front of our listeners. So we appreciate you. We appreciate uh, getting this little um, peek into two great issues that uh, somehow I'd missed in all my years reading comics. So bonus for me. Oh, well, you're more than welcome. Thank you for having me on. Um, it was such a thrill to revisit these and um, uh, it's a pleasure to be on this side. Be be kind, everyone. Be safe. Wear your masks. Keep listening. And and I would say out there, if you're listening to this through your earbuds or whatnot out in the world, um, keep listening not only to Polist and This Week in Marvel and Women of Marvel and Marvel's Voices. You would not believe how cool the projects are that the Marvel audio team is whipping up as we speak. Um uh, it's it's such great stuff. And earlier it was mentioned that the department went from a handful of people to um, seven of us really quickly, almost overnight, almost a year ago. We're nine months in, I think. Um, and it was all in the service of making some really, really cool things coming up soon. So stay tuned. Good teases there. Uh, and oh, and one more thing. Of course, you can read these issues on Marvel Unlimited. All right, that's a wrap, folks. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is everyone's dilby. <laughs> oh, now more than ever. Thanks, Brad. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>